church. I guess it's going to be getting dark pretty soon around this time. All right, well, let's, uh, we've got some people still coming in, but um, we'll, uh, we'll go to the Lord in, in prayer in a minute. So the lesson tonight is, um, is not, I mean, we got, you know, it's nine sessions of cosmology. So I'm going to, I'm gonna, we're going to come up for a little bit of air here, um, if not for you guys, for me too. Um, but we're going we're gonna to kind of be dealing in a, in a discipline of theology called biblical theology. And uh, I think I mentioned this last week, but there's a lot of overlap between cosmology and biblical theology. And um, there, there's, a lot of, there's a connection there, and I hope you'll see that tonight. But in biblical theology, similar to cosmology, we're looking at big pictures. We're looking at what the scripture says from Genesis to Revelation. And um, so we're not, we're not taking bite size. Um, so like systematic theology, you take bite size sort of, you know, what, what does one particular doctrine have to say? And then you search the entire scripture to see what the Bible has to say about that one particular doctrine or aspect of God. Uh, but in biblical theology, you're looking at big picture. You're looking at what the Bible sa says about the themes in the scripture. So you're tying those themes in together. And that's what cosmology is doing. That's what biblical theology does. So we're going to talk about, we're going to be looking at one of the themes that runs through scripture tonight. And Mike was um, Mike was right, and he says, are you going to be in 1 Peter 2.9? And, and we will, and we'll be in others as well. But there is a grand and glorious theme, uh, an identity truth, you could say, uh, that is just saturated in 1 Peter 2.9, and really the whole book there. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to uh, bless our time. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to come together again today. Uh, we are merely vessels of your mercy and your grace. Uh, we have nothing. We can offer nothing. We can do nothing apart from your son. And so we ask that you would fill us tonight with your spirit that you would control us, that you would control our thoughts, our mind, and that we would willingly submit control to your will through the scriptures. So we ask for your power. We ask for your grace. And we give you all the praise. And we thank you again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and turn with me to 1 Peter. We're actually going to just look at two texts, and then we're going to leap off from there. In some ways, you could say tonight's going to be something of an exposition of these texts, although not in the traditional sense, I guess. 
So in 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 4, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we want to focus in on verse 4 and also on verse 9 in this concept or idea that Peter sets forth is the church being a holy priesthood, a living stone, a royal priesthood even. So we're going to unpack some of that tonight. There's a whole treasure in here. And uh, so we want to mine some of this out. Now, if you go back, we're going to we're going to run all the way back to Genesis 128. So turn with me in your Bibles. And if you remember, we were hovering around here the last couple of weeks. And we were talking about this idea of blessing, that God is the one that blesses, right? We don't earn his blessing or favor. And even before the fall, God tells us that his blessing comes from him. It was not merited even prior to sin entering into our experience. And so he says, uh, in verse 28, God says through the prophet Moses, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And then in verse, or I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 15, says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work, to work it, excuse me, to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in that day you eat of it you shall surely die. So 
next week, we're going to look at this God's master plan for marriage in the first covenant. Um, and we're going to look more closely at that. But God commanded Adam to work and to keep the garden. And we looked at two weeks ago how this was closely related to God's temple, right? The creation is God's temple. Uh, so, in fact, if you were to look at the temple and, and observe it from the outside, it moves from the outside. Uh, you have the outer courts and you have the inner courts on the inside of the walls. And then from there, you move into the holy place and then the holy of holies, uh, which is there somewhere in the middle of the temple. Well, the garden was set up that way. The garden reflected the temple, and the temple reflected the garden. So in the garden, you had what? Inside the garden, you had Eden, right? And we said that man was, was placed from outside of Eden into Eden. So he had a specific purpose. God had a plan for Adam. He had a specific purpose for Adam, and he placed Adam inside Eden. And then a centerpiece of Eden, of course, is the tree of life marrying the mercy seat, right? The holy of holies. And that was the place where God dwelt. So God commanded Adam to work and keep it. And we don't, um, we also talked about the connection to these terms work and keep and how they are repeated later in relationship to the priestly work of the Levites inside the tabernacle. So, we don't want to isolate this idea of working and keeping and relegate it only to some idea that Adam was some kind of gardener or some kind of builder or developer. Although that's true, there is a physical aspect, certainly, of that working and keeping. But we want to think more in terms of that Adam was to be a spiritual gardener of sorts. You see, he was given the work of a priest. And why was he given this? Well, he was given it to bring about a spiritual harvest. Adam, like a priest, was to guard his own holiness as well as guard and protect the holiness of the garden from any unclean thing, to keep it pure as the holy place where God dwelt and was to be worshipped. God's very presence and glory filled the garden, right? It says that God walked with Adam in the garden. If you remember later on, the Lord would tell Israel to make sure that they bury their excrement because God walked among his amongst his people. So Adam was to protect the holiness of the garden and Eden, of course, typified, as we said, this coming temple, or we could say that the coming temple pointed back to the garden and pointed forward to Christ. So Christ himself is our temple. So Adam was created to be God's living steward. He was to work. He was to keep the garden holy. He was to tend to it. And so we learn, and throughout the scripture, this is true, we can trace this, that holiness is the first and most important characteristic of a priest. Holiness. Adam was to intercede or mediate to the creation on God's behalf as a holy priest. 
Now, we also see that Adam was to rule as a king. Adam would reflect God's rule as the ultimate sovereign by ruling as God's vice regent. And the word for rule in the Hebrew is shamar, and which is a rich word. It carries, has several connected meanings, but it carries the idea of guarding, protecting, um, to taking care, to watch over, to preserve, right? Uh, we get the idea of holy husband, husbandry as very similar to that, right? To protect, to care for, to guard. So all these ideas are included here. And these are all functions and responsibilities of a righteous king, a righteous king. So the most important characteristic of a king is righteousness, you see, holiness and righteousness. To judge righteously, to rule with integrity, to rule with justice, with incorruptibility. Adam was to be a righteous king. How we lack such rulers today. So Adam was to work, he was to rule in holiness and righteousness, but that's not all. Adam, having received the word of the Lord, was also to speak that word to his wife, to his children, that, they would, that he would be entrusted with by God's grace. So we could say that Adam was a prophet. And we could summarize here to this point by saying that Adam had a threefold office. He was God's holy priest, he was to be God's righteous king, and he was to proclaim the knowledge of God, thus spreading the glory of God throughout the earth, God's temple. Another angle to view this is to say that Adam was the firstborn, he was the first firstborn son of God. The word of God tells us that God had three sons. Adam was the first, firstborn son. It says in Luke 3.38 in Messiah's genealogy that Adam was God's son. It says the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. After Adam's failure, God formed a corporate firstborn son. And that corporate firstborn son was Israel. In Exodus 4.22, it says, God tells Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord Israel, my son, my firstborn son. And we know the story there. Israel, of course, like Adam, failed, and that leads us to Christ. And Christ is the firstborn son of the living God. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Of Christ, the firstborn Son of God, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and you've hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. 
And there's several other texts we could go to to demonstrate this. So God, since the beginning, has sought for himself a ruling son, a son who would inherit the earth, a son who would rule in righteousness, and a son who would be holy. And so Christ rules the throne that was given to him, earned by him, eternally, was given to him by his Father. So he is the immutable one. And this is this text in Hebrews 1 that we referenced is, is uh, taken from Psalm 45, which describes the final triumph of God's messianic king, who has obtained his joy and dominion through a life of steadfast righteousness of which his companions will share with him in his rule. So back to Adam's fall. In the fall, there was a fracturing of this threefold office. The offices were fractured. They were separated. With the distribution of the office of prophet, priest, and king that spread out amongst many different people. And this fracturing was not only within God's covenant people, but it also went out worldwide. You had unholy priests, you had false prophets, you had unrighteous kings all over the globe. You had priests, you had kings, and you had prophets, but you did not, since Adam, have all three in one person, you see. In Israel's case, this all resulted in the loss of unity and the loss of strength, and eventually it led to a fractured kingdom and a separation of the north and southern kingdoms. And so chaos ensued, and essentially we've been dealing with, with that ever since. We've been dealing with a chaotic world that is, that is separated, it's fractured, it's, um, it, it, you know, and, and so much deception, right? There's good kings that come, there's bad kings, and sometimes they're good for a while, and then they turn bad, and sometimes they're bad, they turn good. We have all this, and, and, and wicked priests, and unholy priests, and we have all this, and it's just turmoil. It's been that way ever since the beginning, since the fall. So, after Israel, you see, we have the silent years, and now we're left to wonder Will anyone come that is worthy? Will anyone come that has the credentials to reclaim God's perfect image and to restore this threefold office that was lost at the fall? And so finally, we learn about in Romans 5 that the last Adam did come, right? Uh, the last Adam came. He is the true Israel in uh, spoken of in John 15, he is the true and first faithful firstborn son. God became flesh and fulfilled the long-awaited role, and Christ is the God-man that came to unify and bring together this threefold office. And this is all central to restoring a new humanity to God as the image and the likeness of God. This is not some obscure doctrine, right, just to, to tickle our ears, but this has a very prominent place in our minds. This has a very prominent place in our thinking. There's mounds of, of significance here. 
So Christ is the better priest, he's the better king, he's the better prophet. He restores his people to God so that they can live out through his life their original purpose given to Adam in the garden. Christ, the last Adam, brings the world into what we could say an Edenic-like state amongst an army of his own enemies even, except with even far greater glories, right? Because he proved to be the exceedingly greater man. So Christ is the holy priest, the righteous king, the true prophet. And David, of course, gets a glimpse of this uh, in this merging of these offices together in Psalm 110. And David calls, calls this man Lord, Adonai. So think with me here. Our renewed purpose becomes a reality because of the word that was spoken by Christ our prophet because of the high priestly intercession that he made on our behalf by his perfect life, the giving of his perfect life, and the shed blood, and because of his righteous kingly rule, with his elect becoming his royal and willing subjects. That's a very marvelous thing. And so what is that purpose? Why? Well, it's the same purpose that Adam had from the beginning. See, God never changed his plan. His plan has always been the same. It was never thwarted. It was never pushed aside. It was never removed. God didn't have a backup plan. You know, God didn't change his mind. The plan has always been the same from the beginning. And this is to unite all things in his son. And so to rule, to reign, to mediate between God and the creation, to proclaim his excellencies, this is what God's sons and his daughters will be doing in the new creation forever. This is all in God's plan to replace a sinful, failed humanity under the headship of a washed up, Adam. So, we have our verse. But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, Peter is picking up on all three functions of humanity's restored identity that is, the corporate bride of Christ, the church. And all of this is made a reality by being joined together forever in the true planetary king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we, his subjects, a chosen race, bearing God's brand, the DNA of Christ himself, his own blood now pumping through our veins, as it were, metaphorically speaking, we are bought with the blood, adopted by God, and ruled by the captain of our salvation. Amen. So, in this text, we don't have time to read all of it, but there are seven characteristics, and I, I would encourage you to read through the book a few times in First Peter, but there are seven characteristics of our new identity in Christ taken from this glorious chapter in 1 Peter in chapter 2. 
And these identity markers tell us who we are in Christ. Number one, that we are God's temple. We are God's living stones. Each believer being one stone stacked upon another, built upon the chief cornerstone to be God's dwelling place. Number two, we are God's people. We are a chosen race. We carry God's DNA. By the way, there's only two races of people in the world. I know we get confused by that. But there's only two races of people in the world, according to the scripture, those that are in Adam and those that are in Christ. That's it. Number three, we are God's chattel property. And there's nothing sweeter than being owned by God. That's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing. We are also, number four, God's mediators. We are God's priests. We are God's intercessors. We intercede, of course, for one another. We understand that as being a function of the church, that we intercede for one another. We care for one another, right? We bear one another's burdens. This is a function of the church. Also, we are God's proclaimers. We are God's prophets, as it were. We proclaim his excellencies. We proclaim his great name. We tell the world about the knowledge of God. We spread that knowledge to all four corners. You see, that's the function of the church. And we are God's rulers. We are to rule. We are to reign in our environment. We are to rule over the environment that God has entrusted to us. And finally, we are God's kingdom. Number seven, we are God's kingdom. We are God's royal subjects. We are his restored family. So this is, this is all beautifully articulated in the royal wedding described in Psalm 45. I would encourage you to read through that psalm as well. But it's a wedding song about a royal groom, a beautiful bride, and an eternal royal dynasty and a universal kingdom. The royal groom is a king who outshines Adam. His speech is gracious, his rule is just, and he cherishes his precious royal family. There's so many parallels. So you see, when Adam fell and he was forced out of the garden, God lost his family. You see? He lost his family. And this restoring of his image in mankind is God's worldwide reclamation project to gather a new family, the elect of God, through the new birth by his spirit, and it is now populating the new creation, that when he consumes this current cosmos in fire, as we looked, about it, as we looked at in 2 Peter, and remakes the next cosmos, he will once again place his adopted sons and daughters in his new Eden to work, to reign, to proclaim, and to mediate with God. You see, God is, God is very good to us. He is very kind to us. And this is all because God reclaimed his own image in our perfect man, who is the perfect image of God. And these clues, you know, they're, they're sprinkled throughout in shadow form. If you pay attention, you'll see them. 
In Exodus 19.6, just before the giving of the law, Yahweh tells Moses, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And unto me you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. This is right before the giving of the law. This is positional truth followed up by the so what of the Ten Commandments. You see, there was a purpose. These weren't arbitrary commandments that he was giving to Israel. There was a purpose. There was an indicative that was driving that. We see this come to full flower in Revelation. And Revelation 1, 5 through 6 says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood, who has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. So this theme of a kingdom of priests runs throughout God's word. It's no obscure reality, and God wants us to understand it. So in summary, Scripture sets forth all the way back in Genesis that humanity is God's royal priests. The garden was a place of abundance. It was a place of joy. It was a place of blessing. But because of mankind's rebellion, they forfeited their role God lost his family. They forfeited their function as ruling priests, but God promised one of their descendants would come. A better priest. A better, after the order of a better eternal priesthood. Like the royal priest Abraham met in Melchizedek, right? The king of righteousness and the king of peace. And so this journey throughout time leads us to the Christ, the Messiah, the ultimate king and the ultimate priest who suffered and died for a failed humanity so that they could be rescued and restored by God to be God's royal priests. So then Jesus, after he made purification of sins of his people, he ascended into the heavens, right? But what did he say before he left? He said, wait for the coming spirit, right? Wait for the coming spirit. So in Acts 2 at Pentecost, the spirit of Christ comes and rests upon the disciples and they become what? Many temples, many temples. And just as God took up residence in the tabernacle and later the temple, God was now demonstrating the fullness of Christ's sacrifice and the victory that he secured by making all believers God's very own dwelling place. Hence the treasured hymn, right? Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be what? Thy royal throne. Peter, who was there that day as an eyewitness, he described in his first letter the outcome of the Spirit's work the conversion of God's own people into living stones, 
the temple of God becoming alive on that day of Pentecost, living stones built up as a living house, a royal priesthood, so you all, Peter can say, as living stones, royal priests are a testament of God's never-changing plan promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 to restore humanity as the rightful heirs of the earth, the firstborn, as it were, to rule the world on his behalf. And so it will be. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, I don't feel like a royal priest. <laughs> well, you're in, you're in good company I don't either. We're just common everyday people. You might say, well, I'm just a homemaker, right? Uh, I'm just a small business owner. We're just common everyday people. We have no kingly lineage. We have no priestly line. We're not rich. We're not wise according to human standards. Ah, but you're perfect. You're perfect. This is a wonderful perfect paradox. So we need to embrace the paradox. Now, yes, this must always be tied to our pitiable condition, for apart from Christ, that's what we are. But that's all the more reason to be enthralled in who he is and what he's done. So you were chosen and you were made into something very beautiful, very precious, to borrow the language of Peter, choice, dust to glory. And so we are the extension of Christ here on earth. That's what we are. That's our position. Chosen to represent him through faith by the Spirit to the world as living stones in which God is building his creation. He's building his temple to house his royal priests. So when we sacrifice our time, talents, and energies to fill the earth with the fragrance of Christ, these are the sacrifices that bring glory to God and are very pleasing to him. Paul says that we are to offer up our bodies to God as living sacrifices. Christ offered himself as the ultimate living sacrifice so that we are to surrender ourselves on behalf of Christ to his high calling. We are glory pointers as it were, spreading the glory of our great God to the praise of his glory. So when we imitate our royal priests, we are acting as the new humanity on this earth before the coming of the new earth, that one day on that mountain where heaven and earth meet, we will proclaim, we will join heaven and earth as it were, Luther, Luther, excuse me, Martin Luther used to say of music that music was the bridge between heaven and earth. You know, Zion is that bridge. Zion is where heaven meets earth. So the scripture is telling a story, a unified story, of a royal priesthood humanity that lost its way and how God promised to raise up a prophet who would unify the office of king and priest and thus he would unify his people in him forever. And so this is the greatest reclamation project that the world has ever known. And that's why in Revelation, in the book of the Revelation, there is a vision of a new humanity of royal priests. 
where God's people will reign with him, offering up their very selves as worship unto the living God and to his Lamb. And so my question for us is, knowing our transcendent cause, how could we ever be distracted by the lesser glories of this temporary earth, this fleeting world? So application. And here's where the rubber meets the road. <laughs> what, what is all the significance of this? How does this play itself out in real time in our lives? How is this supposed to change the way that I think? How is this supposed to change my behavior? And when it comes to how we do church, how does this relate as a believer priest in the church? Well, it's, it's the polar opposite of a consumer and a spectator, you see. The believer priest is a disciple, and he is a disciple maker. He is on mission in his zeal to fulfill the Great Commission. He counts it a grand privilege to build with Christ by edifying the brethren. He models what it means to invest in others. The believer priest is told to stir up one another in Hebrews 10.24, to be devoted to good deeds in Titus 3.8, exhort against sin in Hebrews 3.13, to edify one another in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, teach, admonish one another, Colossians 3.16. In other words, God's believer priest, when controlled by the Spirit, and when saturated with the word of God, is fully equipped, commanded, and enabled to minister to the body. He now, like a holy priest, after the order of his Lord, lives to intercede for others. He lives to bless the church, to rule his wife and children in righteousness, to love and sacrifice and proclaim the excellencies of his master. And when I say he, I'm including the role of women as well. You understand that. But in our fallenness, we, we don't often think this way. You see, we don't often attach our high calling to who Christ is. We see our commitment level to Christ's cause often pivots on our own personal comfort rather than by our high calling as a slave, as one purchased by God and a recipient of the eternal mercies of God. So how, how different is the doctrine of the kingdom of priests? The believer priest sees himself as Christ's purchased possession. He's not his own. He's bought with a price. He knows that his Lord and Savior has taken possession of him and that everything he owns is on loan, including his wife, husband, children, possessions, everything. He's not there to warm a pew. He's not there to check off an attendance box. He knows that God has surrounded him with relationships which represent divine appointments for mutual edification. He comes to the church with the expectation that the Spirit of God has equipped and called him to fulfill his role and part in the corporate sanctification 
and maturity of the body. So, brothers and sisters, what I see here in looking out into this room is I see a room full of ministers. That's what you are. You're a priesthood. You're a minister. You're equipped. You are empowered. You are sustained by Christ to do the work of the ministry, Ephesians 4. You may not hold the office of a minister, but that is exactly who you are. You are a minister. You are a kingdom of priests, perfectly fitted as God's temple to build up the church. You see, the believer, by the work and blood of Christ applied to him, is a set-apart, devoted thing, a useful, holy vessel for honorable use, and a uniquely new creature who is a part of the new humanity being constructed into a temple of living stones, fitted, fashioned to offer up sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to God while proclaiming his excellencies. So how easily do we miss the fact that the hard truths of Scripture that are part of this, they're like steel, like a steel plow that harrows the hardened conscience. But that plowing process is necessary to prepare them for repentance and grace. This may be off-putting at times to the hearer, but in the end, it helps cultivate an environment where truth, holiness, and the healing balm of the word of God can begin to cultivate, can begin to grow, right? We speak the truth to one another in love, love being the motivation behind that speaking of the truth, cultivating our environment, ruling, taming, subduing, spreading the knowledge of God, in other words, the spiritual care involved in shepherding by a believer priest is a very effective place to proclaim these hard truths. For in that relational space of shepherding, there is love, there's personal concern, there's care, and these are some of the greatest incentives for soul-searching transparency in the church and true ongoing continuous repentance and obedience. So we are to be a holy nation. That's what sets us apart. But like Peter says, we're just one, one brick, right? We're one brick, and he's building something. He's building something very glorious, something lasting, something eternal. So our beholding of Christ as the enthroned Lord of glory is best achieved from the vantage point of a believer priest. And why, why is that? Because our priesthood is grounded in Christ's high priesthood. We are messengers and we are ambassadors of the king who appointed us to declare that through our substitute we served an atoning and atoned for God. Therefore, be ye reconciled to God, right? 2 Corinthians 5. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Hebrews 12, 14 through 15. So we must understand, this is so important, that this transforming glory of Christ, it's not to be mediated by Larry. It's not to be mediated by one particular person. 
It's not solely to be given by a paid professional, but it is mediated by the word and the spirit through the hearts and the mouths of God's people. This is God's cosmic plan of the ages, to unite his people in his son and to send them off to fulfill God's purpose for humanity. So we might ask the question, if there is to be reform in the church today, and I surmise that most, if not all of you, would agree that the church does need reform, then the question we need to address ought to be, do we preach, do we teach, do we live, and do we do church with this truth of this priesthood in mind? You see, identification truths are so essential. They are essential positional doctrines that must be firmly entrenched in every believer's mind and affirmed often in one another. There may be some in this room that maybe have not even heard about this. I know in many other churches that's true. But, but, they're not lazy boy chairs for us to recline back on. The believer's designation as a priest does not terminate on himself. Instead, it propels him into the world as Christ's ambassador to serve and to witness. He is a sent one, and he is echoing the prophet Isaiah's bold petition, send me, send me. You see, his orientation is towards mission. That's what happens at conversion. You're converted to be on mission. So this is not a privileged status for us to stretch our legs out on. It is a commission in this short life, which sends forth into the world to harness the power of Christ and his ministry, to rule righteously, to intercede with holy love, and to spread and model the knowledge of God to one another. This is the believer's holy calling. So why don't we hear about these doctrines historically? Why are they veiled? Well, in part, because it is a threat to the professional clergyman, and it is a wake-up call to the nominally attached. We must realize that tradition, not clinging to Christ's lordship, will over time degenerate into a sort of rigor mortis of institutionalism, a decrepitness. And that institutionalism will cannibalize the Spirit's work in the church from the inside. And that church will begin to define itself by unspoken rules, by programs, by events, social structures. It will often look vibrant and alive on the outside, but eventually function will ultimately eat up the organic life of the church and a hollow core will begin to take its toll. You see, we are sustained by the root and that root is Christ. He is our dwelling place. He is our sustenance. He is our life source. 
Activity apart from delight in God and the causes of our Lord will eventually produce rotten fruit. And as we said last week, the fault does not only lie with leadership, but also within our own hearts. We need to be quick to repent of the nominalism that plagues the West today. We need to embrace our high calling and we need to submit to the Lordship of Christ. So part of the battle is being aware of our fallen tendencies. That's part of the battle. Our tendency to, one of our tendencies is to want to anoint a king. You see, give us a king. <laughs> give us a king to rule over us. It's so deeply entrenched in the unredeemed part of our flesh. And we know that both in the Old Testament and in church history, there was this constant tendency for people to consolidate themselves around and to take solace even in a sort of visible figurehead. This is, this is what we do. Our fallen hearts are weak. Um, faith tends to gravitate towards human leaders. And we look to them for security, for blessing, for belonging, for glory, honor, attaboys, likes. We often settle for the lesser glories of the creation. But the apostle warns us, in fact, he commands us that we should oppose this inclination. In 1 Corinthians 3.21, he says, So then let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. In exposing this man-centered predisposition, Martin Luther stated that religion always tends to deteriorate and degrade into a system of honoring men. Our fallen natures and what remains of them are predisposed to comfort. We're often short-sighted, we're often tribal, and we're man-centered. Funny, none of those things we read this morning as fruit of the Spirit. Consider that the children of Israel, they had all the covenant promises of God as the only divinely chosen theocratic nation, right? God was their king. He was their king. And they still pressured Samuel to appoint a fallible mortal king so that Israel would be like the other nations. In 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20, it says, Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the other nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. God told Samuel some heart-rending news that their plea for an earthly king was tantamount to the rejection of God himself as their king. That ought, to, that ought to make us concerned. That ought to concern us. That ought to get our attention. The old man that we live with wants to cry out that Adam isn't washed up. That there is some flicker inside of him. Some flame. That if we just fan that flame enough, it can grow, grow into a roaring fire. But Adam has been sentenced to death row. His days are numbered. There's no spiritual kernel inside of him. He is dead in his sins. He is dead in his transgressions. He is dead to the things of God. He is alienated from God. And he is without hope in the world. Adam is washed up. 
his planetary rule is over. In Christ, the new Adam, he enjoys all the privileges and rights that being our high priest and sovereign king comes with. It is him we are in, not Adam. And this is cause to celebrate and to take hold of that promise and strive to enter into his rest. So God's plan to build a kingdom of priests is not some obscure subpoint of the new covenant, but the identity of the Christian as a believer priest is a controlling 24-7 identity. It affects our ministry at home within our families. It affects our work. It affects our corporate worship. And it consequently is critical to the overall health and maturation of the body of Christ. If we are just relying upon one man or two men or three men, that we're not seeing clearly what the Word of God says. We want to see clearly. And we want to find our delight in Him. So Christ Himself is the sphere of which our kingdom transfer took place. He is the sphere in which we are quickened out of our spiritual death, and He is the sphere in which we are sustained by His immutable life. And he is the sphere in which we will fulfill our ministering calling by his spirit. So when we probe to think a little bit more, just here before we close, viewing the landscape of the church today, what kind of believer is the church producing? Is the church growing serious, active, faithful believer priests? who enthusiastically embrace their priestly privileges and their responsibilities? Well, we know that the answer to that is no. But how did the bar become so set so low? And the answer to a great degree is that ministers and members have engaged in an unspoken contract which centralizes shepherding as a function only of the pastorate. And that mindset militates against the divinely ordained role of the believer priest to engage in mutual shepherding. So one word of caution, while we embrace our status as kings and priests, we always, always want to continuously join our high status to the person and the work of Christ. For he is our source person. We can do nothing apart from him. He rules his church by his word and he controls his church through the spirit. He is an endless fount of blessing, joy, service, love, and peace. But apart from his rule over us, our pride will come in. Our fleshly impulses will incrementally rise up and we will begin to justify our unholiness. But we don't want this fear to park us on the sidelines and I think that's what happens a lot of the time. This is where that relational space of love, care, and concern comes into play, right? We confess our sins to one another. We speak the truth to one another. We care for one another with the goal of restoration and becoming more holy like our man from heaven. But it must be joined to that care and concern in that relational space 
And if that is absent, then that is a sure sign that Christ has, has ceased to be your Lord of glory, ceased to be your source person. So the biblical doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, it comes with at least two safeguards. And I'm going to give them to you quickly. The first, believers are commanded to be clothed with humility and they are to be subject to their elders. For faithful elders who truly shepherd the flock, they watch over the souls of those who have will give, a, give an account, right? And a second safeguard is that the believer's priestly role is always joined to its corporate expression. What do I mean by that? Our priestly role is not defined primarily as private judgment, but rather it is an informed judgment. An informed judgment, judgment always involves the members of the body of Christ together discerning and affirming the truth of the word of God as, they, as it comes to bear, as these doctrines are proclaimed, as the truth comes to bear, right? There's a consolidation work of the Spirit organically that brings the church together. So the proper response to our privileged status can be summarized in Romans 12.1. You guys know this verse very well. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You see, our whole lives are to be given back to God as one holy consecration, one giant thanksgiving, thanksgiving, right? One, one big thank you. In Zechariah 6 and 12 through 15, you don't have to turn there, but it says that, I'll read this. You see, Zechariah, uh, he was given an image, a vision, and he, he, he saw this longed-for vision of, a Messiah, of the Messiah coming and the Messiah would join the office of king and priest. And he would build his temple. And he would fill it with men and women from all four corners of the globe. In verse 11 it says, quote, Take from them silver and gold and make a crown. And set it on the head of Joshua the high priest. Right? He was a foreshadowing of the coming high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. This is a very high calling. It's our identity. It's who we are. It's what we're called to. Adam's reign under the rule of the devil is coming to an end, and God is going to wipe away every tear. And there will be endless bliss for those who are the portion of the weakest, even the weakest, frailest saint whose hope is in our king and high priest. They will rejoice and dance. 
for he is interceding for us now. He has clothed us with white garments, and he will one day place us in his new creation to rule and to reign and to intercede with him in the creation forever. So we began in Genesis, and once again we'll end in Revelation. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, and a people, and a nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth forever. And just turn with me to Revelation 22.5. Just read this together. This is the end. It's the end of the story here. I'll just read it from the beginning. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's the end of the vision. They will reign with him forever and ever. And so let me give you this, beloved, as our benediction. Revelation 1.5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the words of your book. It's food for the soul. It's nourishment for our bones. It fuels us. It's our food and drink. And we love you all the more because of its glorious truth. Oh, Lord, forgive us for relegating these precious words to a checklist of do's and don'ts. Help us, Lord, to love your word all the more, to treasure it in our hearts, that it may bear the fruit that resembles and reflects who you truly are. Thank you for your great love. Bless us as we go, we pray. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.